It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Lola Falana episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Adam Grossworth, Michal Richardson, and Christy Bauer. Here is a Muppet News Flash. Alright, I'm just going to say up front that I have a cold, so listeners, apologies for the way I sound. Um, but here we go. We are here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 11 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of July 10th, 1979, and it aired in New York City on November 26th, 1979. It was number 10 in the air order between Liza Minnelli and Phyllis George, neither of whom we have talked about yet. Well, we've talked about Liza Minnelli a lot, but not her I episode mean, of The Muppet well, Show. Yeah. <laughs> We did talk about Phyllis George in the context of chicken. True. <laughs> in the news, New York City had record high temperatures of 73 degrees. Do you think the earth is warming? <laughs> Maybe. The front page of the New York Times has the Iran hostage crisis, Israel-Egypt peace talks, a plane crash in Saudi Arabia, and this, the Waldorf hysteria, rooms are misplaced and telephones fail. I promise you I'm not about to read the whole article, but it's maybe going <laughs> to feel like it. So <laughs> if you hate the sound of my voice, skip ahead one minute. The Waldorf Astoria installed a $2 million computerized telephone system late Friday night, and by Sunday, it was misrouting incoming calls and failing to make outgoing calls at all. To compound the confusion, most of the hotel's room numbers had been changed early Saturday to conform with the system's new phone numbers, and some guests returning after a night out couldn't find their rooms at all. I thought I was having my breakdown, said Mrs. John Shepard of South Windsor, Connecticut. Not a breakdown, my breakdown. I'm obsessed with this article. <laughs> whose room number had been changed while she was down in the lobby for a few minutes. I went upstairs and my room had disappeared. I searched a while and then I decided to go get my husband in the lobby. But I said to myself, wait a minute, you're 48 years old. You can read numbers and you can handle this by yourself. I found a maid and she took me all over the floor and couldn't find the room either. Finally, my husband came along and told me about the change. I was relieved, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and this is a, a new person speaking. There are over 18 of these systems in New York hotels, and nothing has ever gone wrong during a cutover before, said Harriet Norris, speaking for the telephone company. Unfortunately, the one time it happened, it happened at the Waldorf. It's been no picnic, I'll tell you. <laughs> and then there's some stuff about the kitchen, which ends with, people just seem to eat more moose in crisis situations, Mr. Minetti said earnestly. The same thing happened during the blackout. Maybe it's easier to spoon up than pie or cake. Oh my god! <laughs> we will link this in the show notes. I want there to be an entire mini-series about this event. This is incredible. I don't understand why it was on the front page is the main thing. But like, <laughs> it's just so tonally perfect. You, I mean, I'm sure it was awful for everyone involved, especially the hotel staff and the phone company staff. But it's just like, even in these all these quotes, like no one is taking it all that seriously. And I don't know, it just was delightful. And so much of the phrasing is like, so like weirdly old-timey, even though it's not that long ago. Yeah, whatever happened to people ending sentences with, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, everything else that stood out to me in this newspaper were ads. So in brief, there's a Bloomingdale's gift ad. It doesn't say it's a gift ad. It's like hot buys at Bloomingdale's, but it's late November. It's obviously a Christmas Hanukkah ad, which will be in the show notes. It's amazing. And it includes the Perrier bath sheet, as luxurious to the touch as the drink is to the taste, which is just a great reminder of what a big fucking deal Perrier was in the 70s. <laughs> It's seltzer. <laughs> There's an ad for Con Edison, which is the uh, New York metro area's power company, advocating for a switch from Middle Eastern oil to U.S. coal. Great. And then there's one of those ads uh, aimed at advertisers in the back that said, at one time, I thought I'd outgrow Playboy, but today I find it more useful than ever. <laughs> Raising. 
in the movies, uh, a lot of stuff we've talked about before, Rocky II, The Rose, Animal House, 10, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, Apocalypse Now, and of course, The Muppet Movie. Fiddler on the Roof from 1971 is back in theaters, and the ad says Fiddler on the Roof, a tradition, which I guess, was it? To go see Fiddler on the Roof on Thanksgiving? Sure, why not? (laughs) Why not? And something called Arabian Adventure, which featured John Ratzenberger as Ahmed, and I'm sure that was just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Midnight at the Oasis, where everybody knows your name. (laughs) On the Cashbox Pop Charts, the number one song is Babe by Styx. Number two is Enough is Enough by Barbara Streisand and Donna Summer. And the number one album is The Long Run by The Eagles. On TV, CBS has our usual The White Shadow, MASH, WKRP, and Lou Grant. ABC has 240 Robert and Football. But before and after that, on the Channel 7 News at 6 and 11, another fantastic ad, Close Encounters of the Incurable Kind. And then the image is a wall of graffiti with in the center of it, Herpes is Forever. And then the series that they're running this week is called VD, the love bug, (laughs) like Herbie, the love bug. It's just like, oh, my God, there are so many references in that one thing. It's spectacular. NBC, Little House on the Prairie, the Ingalls joy over the birth of Mary's baby is clouded by the sudden death of Caroline's mother. That was followed by Beggar Man Thief Part One, which was a sequel to Rich Man, Poor Man. The Jordash family had one thing in common, sin. Ooh. Story of a family consumed by greed and the men and women who struggle to hold their lives together. An exciting drama that spans three continents. And this featured Muppet Show guest star Lynn Redgrave. Is that the Jordash family of jeans and shoes fame? I don't think so. I think it's a coincidence. But I did have the same thought. I hope one of the continents is Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Them and penguins. Yeah, it's only three. What a weird... Anyway, um... PBS has another episode of Song by Song, which we talked about before this week, featuring E.Y. Harburg. I wonder if that's the thing that the Over the Rainbow clip comes from. Oh, maybe. Because it was from around the same time, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, now we're going to have to cry all over again. Damn it. Good old yep. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, ho, and welcome to the Muppet Show. And it's going to be a great show tonight because our special guest star is a wonderful singer, dancer, and comedian, Miss Lola Falana. <laughs> Lola Falana, singer, queen of Las Vegas, Black Venus. Lolita Elaine Falana was born in 1942 in Camden, New Jersey. The daughter of an Afro-Cuban welder and an African-American seamstress, Lola began dancing at age three and was singing with her church choir by age five. Her family moved to Philadelphia, and by the time Lola was in junior high, she was dancing in nightclubs. Dinah Washington gave Lola her first big break, offering her the opening slot before her Philadelphia engagement in 1958. Lola dropped out of high school shortly before graduation to pursue a career in New York City. Her next big break came when Sammy Davis Jr. saw her dancing in the chorus of a show in Atlantic City and cast her in his 1964 Broadway musical Golden Boy. Sammy Davis Jr. became a mentor and allegedly a lover to Falana. She launched a music career around the time of Golden Boy with the single My Baby in 1965. In 1967, Davis brought her over to his record label, Reprise, which was founded by noted Joe Raposo stan Frank Sinatra. Davis also brought Falana to Hollywood, casting her in the film A Man Called Adam. But true screen fame would come to Falana in Italy, where her performances on television and film earned her the nickname Black Venus. Between screen commitments, she performed with Davis in concert and in the London production of Golden Boy. As the decades drew to a close, she ended their professional relationship, ostensibly in order to stake out more of an identity for herself, but more likely because Davis told his wife about his longtime affair with Falana. In 1970, she solidified her split from Davis by marrying Feliciano Butch Tavares Jr., one of five brothers from the popular R&B soul 
vocal band Tavares in 1970. That same year, Lola was nominated for the Golden Globe Award for New Star of the Year for her performance in the film The Liberation of L.B. Jones. She amplified her burgeoning film career with appearances in Playboy and the Fabergé Tigress perfume ads. Throughout the 70s, Lola was a familiar face on television variety shows and talk shows, including The Joey Bishop Show, Hollywood Palace, and The New Bill Cosby Show. In 1975, her marriage to Bush Tavares ended, but her disco album, There's a Man Out There Somewhere, hit 67 on the Billboard R&B chart, and she was back on Broadway, if only for a brief visit, starring in the flop Dr. Jazz, for which she was nevertheless awarded a Theater World Award. She headed west and took her act to Vegas, and by the end of the decade, she was the highest-paid female entertainer in the city, known as the Queen of Las Vegas. In the 80s, her health took priority as she dealt with multiple sclerosis. In 1987, she had a particularly bad relapse that partially paralyzed her, affecting her ability to see, speak, and hear. She spent her recovery time committed to prayer, and following her recovery, she converted to Catholicism. She continued to perform for a while, but eventually her health made that less viable. She still tours as a speaker on spiritual matters, but otherwise she lives in Las Vegas, operating a lay ministry committed to helping orphan children in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so, has anyone heard of Lola Falana before encountering this episode? Absolutely not. Like, you could have shown me a picture of literally anyone. Like, you, could, like I was like, what? What is she going to be a puppet? Is she going to be <laughs> like an old lady? Like, what... I, I was fascinated to find out who she was. And now that I, I've seen her, I'm still not 100% sure. But I knew the name, but like with no context around it. I mean, I like it, it's a funny name. So I feel like maybe like she was a reference slash punchline in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, and Showgirl sounds right, but that might just be because it sounds like Copacabana. So I, that's really all I got. But like, in that monoculture way, I had heard of her, but didn't know anything about her. Yeah, like I knew her name, but I couldn't have told you what she was famous for. Yeah, including yeah. this episode. This was all brand new to me, basically. Yeah, just this. I will say that in prepping for this episode, I did go looking for some of her non-Muppet show appearances to get a better sense of her. And it's interesting, like, she does not have, like, a big footprint in available culture now. Like, the movies that she was in aren't readily available the music that she recorded is not available on streaming. Uh, there is, however, one committed fan on YouTube who has archived a ton of her television appearances. And she was sort of like a black Mitzi Gaynor in that, like, it seems that, and I guess this goes along with, like, being the Queen of Vegas, but, like, she really shone in the television special arena. Uh, and we'll include a couple of the better clips in the show notes because I think they really highlight why she was the highest paid entertainer in Las Vegas. And even though like she's a fine singer, but she's not like the best singer and she's beautiful, but there are a lot of beautiful women and she can dance, but she's not like an outstanding dancer, but she's just got this incredible showmanship that when given the appropriate budget for costumes and backup dancers uh, really creates something pretty spectacular, but also you can understand why it was really of the moment and hasn't really made a lasting impression. Yeah, it was helpful for me to click uh, click around through that Vegas special that you sent us and get a little more context for yeah what what that it is that she had that didn't really come across in this episode. But let's talk about the episode. Well, Michal, since you kicked us <laughs> off, what did you think of the episode? Okay, so even though the guest star performance in this episode didn't make much of an impression on me, and even though there were two big numbers 
that musically I didn't actually care for. I still loved this episode. It made me laugh. It made me cry several times. I got multiple numbers from the Muppet Chickens, and I'm a sucker for Muppet Chickens. And there was a really moving backstage story that permeated all aspects of the episode. And it was a nice change that there was a really engaging backstage story that it wasn't hinging on a Jim or Frank character or a Jim and Frank dynamic together. It was all about Gonzo and Gonzo not being too horrible. Gonzo comes off a little smarmy in this episode, but he's not creeping us out too much. He does slap Camille on the butt that one time. That's a thing. I'm talking myself out of loving this episode. No, I loved this episode. Who's next? (laughs) Christy. Yeah, I didn't love this episode, uh, but I didn't hate it. This is another kind of top of the middle for me. There wasn't anything in it that was particularly offensive. Um, I mean, there's one moment in this that fully breaks me in half. But yeah, the Lilith Lana stuff, I could take or leave. I I did like the selection of songs. I I think there there are a lot of really strong song choices in this. But overall, I was just kind of like, yeah, okay. Well, we all know I'm dead inside. Because on on paper, this should be an episode I love. It's a strong backstage plot. It's a strong guest star. The guest stars involved in the backstage plot. I love Gonzo. But I don't know. It just didn't. I like it. Fine. Like, I'm about to sound like I hated it, which I didn't. But it didn't gel for me i found the gonzo stuff sort of maudlin and off brand tonally i wanted more lola falana even not knowing anything about her i just i was charmed by her and i wanted her to do more performance wise i don't like that we got the exact same joke twice for a long time uh even though one of those is the uk spot it was fine i liked it fine but i i yeah i was not moved in the way that michael was i have a theory yeah is it that Michal loves chickens, loves Muppet chickens? <laughs> um, well, uh, no, I mean, that that's proven fact. <laughs> no, my I, I have a theory as to why the, the Gonzo plot didn't fully land for you. And we will get into it when we talk about the music. Because I'm dead inside? I mean, that, that also goes <laughs> without saying. David, how about you? Uh, I think the first time I watched it, I felt like Michal did. And then the second time I watched it, I felt more like Christy did. And I think this is a great, example of the Muppet show as sitcom and a terrible example of the Muppet show as variety show. Mm-hmm. And I think watching all of those other Lola Flana appearances in between showed me how much more we could have had if they had leaned into what she does best. Uh, and instead uh, she really just sort of felt like, like filler or a prop in between the Gonzo stuff. And, and that sort of, unbalances the episode and although i liked a lot of the music in the episode i really didn't like the music that she performed or at least the, her onstage performances and so that made it really hard to fully embrace this episode it might also be that what one additional point in its favor that won me over a little bit while i was watching was i was grateful that they had a beautiful woman on the show known for being a beautiful woman and a showgirl and they didn't lean too heavily into Guess what? It's a sexy lady. We're going to only focus on that the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> we focused that's a on other point. things. Growth. Yeah. I mean, she does fully jerk Gonzo off, but we'll get into it. <laughs> As we open the show this week, Lola is on the phone with Bernie the Agent, whom we've heard of in this production and other Muppety productions, but whom we never see. Lola Falana? 15 seconds of curtain, Lola. Thank you. Tell them I'm sick. Anything. Just get me out of it. Oh, 
sorry, Scooter. Uh, just talking to my agent. Oh. What did you say? Oh, I said 15 seconds to curtain. Thank you, darling. Uh-huh. You got to work fast, Bernie. You only got 15 seconds. Bernie, the agent is magical. I just need to point out that, uh, as we heard earlier in our episode, but later in the Muppet Show episode, Kermit will introduce Lola as singer, dancer, comedian. But I think this is literally the only comedy she does for the entire episode. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you you are right that we didn't get a sense of her full range of skills in this episode. Statler and Waldorf also not eager to be here. Hey, don't start on our account! And then Gonzo actually trumpets triumphantly. Hooray! (laughs) I give autographs after the show! And Gonzo being full of himself, a harbinger of things to come. That's two in a row, right? In our order? Yeah. That's weird. I don't like it. (laughs) That's how he got the movie deal. The Muppet Show backstage! So backstage, and also on stage, and also inside Lola's closet this week, uh, Gonzo has gotten his big break. I almost misread my notes as big beak. Gonzo's gotten a big break. (laughs) (laughs) And he has become immediately insufferable. It is true. This is it, Kerm. Uh, Yes, folks, believe it or not, Gonzo is leaving us. He's going to Bombay, India to become a movie star. (sighs) Yep, I got an offer from 20th Century Chicken. Uh, Gonzo, we wish you all the luck in the world. Well, thanks, Kerm. Hey, listen, I want you to know I'm never going to forget all you little people I met along the way. Uh, uh, Thanks. It ain't nothing, really. I think after that, Kermit says under his breath, no, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Gonzo has gone Hollywood. Or rather, that's if you want to do it the easy way. Gonzo has gone Bollywood. This is one of the things that I think just rubbed me the wrong way. Because Bollywood was absolutely a thing, you know, since the 1800s. But I like I went and looked this up because I was like, is this a, a later phenomenon? No, it peak Bollywood, according to Wikipedia, was in the 60s and 70s. And then it like had a resurgence later on. But I feel like especially because they filmed in the UK. Yes, it's funny. The idea of Gonzo becoming a Bollywood star. Like, don't get me wrong. But like, I just had a moment like, is this racist? <laughs> well, I think the point of it being the hard way is like, I mean, he presumably doesn't speak any of the languages that Bollywood is filmed it. Right. Like, it's still a funny image. I mean, and I would love to see that movie, but like know, farther yeah. away than Hollywood is from wherever we think the Muppet Theater might be. Also true. But there's something about like, oh, you're going to Bombay. That well, it's also that backwater. I, like, I mean, it's a direct reference to something he says in the Muppet movie, also. Right. And yes, I think there there is some element of like, oh, it's a funny place name. It's a remote thing that nobody can fathom. Right, that's what that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's just funny that like they picked a place the that actually in fact, of it. right? But then they picked a place that actually has like an enormous film industry. Well, but that's that's to. why the joke works. Like, it wouldn't be as funny if it was like I'm going to Timbuktu. To- Thank you. I was like, I, I don't know. Yeah. How to- oh, <laughs> see, I think that'd be funnier. But- racist, like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, going to Albuquerque, which also now, in fact, has a thriving film and TV industry, but not the point. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, as we will discuss, there are two different Muppet Chicken numbers in this episode. And after they finish their first number, they come off stage and we learn that they are severely distressed about Gonzo leaving. I just can't believe he's leaving. Watch the crying girls. You'll get depressed and start to molt. I was distressed hearing one of our Muppet Chickens speak English. So it's just an act. They really speak English the rest of the time. <laughs> it's just on stage that they speak chicken. Well, no, because they also speak chicken to Gonzo. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe he speaks chicken. It's like a Chewbacca situation. Yeah. They understand each other. 
Yeah. Chicken baka. Chicken buck buck buck. There it is. <laughs> yep. So everybody's distressed. Nobody can believe it. Miss Piggy can't believe it. She yells at Kermit and says, "The little blue geek got a movie deal." And then she approaches Gonzo. Gonzo, I was just talking about you. Yeah, in fact, she said you were a little blue. I got Kermit there. Don't you have to go on stage and wave your arms or something? Uh, uh, sure. Ha 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 ha. Um, Gonzo. I am just so proud of you and your movie deal. Oh, well, I guess it was just in the cards, MP. <laughs> yes, yes, and um, I just uh, want you to know that, uh, you know, at your movie studio, if you should ever happen upon a producer who is looking for a mm, sex goddess. Yes, I'll know just who to call. <laughs> Thank you. Camilla. Let me tell you. The way I screamed, don't you have to go on stage and wave your arms or something? It is the burn <laughs> to end all burns. And then they do this little fake laughter where Kermit like waves his arms around and pretends to laugh while Miss Piggy pretends to laugh with him. And it's like they've been in a decades long marriage that is about to escalate into a gunfight. It's incredible. Ugh, it's beautiful. And Miss Piggy's doing all this acting while Gonzo is like calling her MP or saying it's just in the cards. Like she's doing these tiny little takes to the camera. And like, even though her eyes don't roll, you can see that she's rolling her eyes and looking at us and being like, can you believe this guy? <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> ah, Frank Oz, good at his job. So a little bit later, Gonzo assures Camilla that as soon as he's settled into his mansion and has his limo, he will send for her and then... Lola Falata comes off the stage uh, in her dress that is more cutouts than dress and walks right up to Gonzo. Gonzo, baby, put it here. Huh? Right here. I tell you, I have worked with some of the biggest, but you're right up there with the best. Oh, and don't forget to stop by my dressing room. I want to give you my phone number. Hey, I'll be there, babe. Okay, so A, Lola Falata wants to fuck Gonzo, which I feel like we should unpack a little bit. And B, that boinging sound. Care to explain what's happening? That boinging sound is L- Lola Falana shaking Gonzo's nose, as one might shake a hand. But it's Gonzo's nose, which looks like what it looks like. And she has these long red fingernails. And I don't know, it just, it goes on for a while. And the sound effect is weird. And it made me uncomfy. It made Camilla uncomfy, too. She had to yeah, this. Yeah, rightly so. I gotta admit, though, it's gonna seem strange not working for you, KF. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's going to be strange for us, too, Gonzo. Still, no regrets. Hmm. Well, one regret. Oh? I never did my masterpiece act for you. Oh, what's that? I sing Top Hat while tap dancing in a vat of oatmeal. Uh, uh, it's an act worthy of your talent, Gonzo. And of your show. Touché. Kermit is doing that great little disgruntled face while Gonzo is waggling his little eyelids. And you can't even tell who's serious anymore. Muppets are great. This feels like it's good a place as I need to mention that there's like a a little tiny bit in Muppets and Men about this uh, where Jerry Jewell says, sometimes we steal material from what happens here at the studio. One week when two key members of the production team left the show, there was a very emotional farewell party with people on the verge of tears. That led directly to the show in which Gonzo announced that he was going to quit the Muppet Theater. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. Gonzo's going to perform his swan song. Um, I love that Kermit introduces it by calling Gonzo the master of culture and violence. We will talk about the actual song later, but let's talk about the pathos that comes with it. Because it turns out that for all his bluster, Gonzo 
does not really actually want to leave the Muppet Show. Are you okay, Gonzo? It's just a song. I know. It's not the song. I just don't want to go. Yeah, but you're going to go out and make movies. I want to go there. I just don't want to leave here. You had a choice to make Gonzo, and, and you made it, and it was a good choice. I know. I don't like long goodbyes, Gonzo, so, uh... Take care of yourself, Gonzo. Yeah, you too. Uh, uh, well, we, we've had a little change of plans. Uh, I think we'd better just take a break. How oh, fucking man. dare them. Uh, <laughs> it's the most brutal thing. Oh my gosh. This is also, I think, where Kermit's leadership strengths really kick into high gear is in moments like this. Yeah, I was going to say, this feels like the first time we've seen Muppet movie Kermit on The Muppet Show. Yeah. Where he's like more three-dimensional, really, but also sort of more fatherly to the rest of his his friends than he typically is in The Muppet Show, where he's more likely to yell at them rather than comfort them. There's something about the tone the tone that Kermit uses or the the quality of his voice right here feels very reminiscent of some moments in the Muppet movie, especially while they're they're camped out under the stars and Gonzo has just sung, I'm, I'm going to go back yeah. there someday. Yeah. That, this feels like that same Kermit voice. And so, of course, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> what else would you expect was going to happen? You would think, I mean, I love that scene in the Muppet movie. I love that song. It makes me cry every time. But I, there's just something about it that was like, I don't know. It's, I think it's the writing, honestly. Like, I want to go there, but I don't want to stay here. It just like there's something about it just like didn't work for me, and I can't articulate why. So I should stop trying, and we should move on. Um, but it just—I don't know. It's like too childlike, too condescending on Kermit's part. But I'm glad you liked it. I will say, I love the hug. Whenever Muppets hug, it's kind of the best thing. Yeah, and they do that little back pat thing. And then Kermit's hand also, like, they walk away. Kermit puts his arm around Gonzo. They walk off the stage together, and Kermit's hand is doing a little wiggle thing. Like, he's, even though his arm is still around Gonzo, Jim is managing to manipulate just the hand so it looks like just the fingers are tapping Gonzo on the back. Yeah. I don't know how that works, but it's magical. And during the number, Gonzo is holding his jacket, like, over his shoulder, like, with one finger, which actually means that that arm doesn't work at all. It's clearly, like, stapled to his shoulder. But... The hug works so well in spite of that or because of it. They really look very real in that moment. That's really nice. And yet, throughout this entire episode, I was really distracted by how dead their hands are so often. Mm. And like, I don't know, usually, I guess it's better hidden on The Muppet Show. And I think in the movies, they, and, and certainly in more contemporary Muppet things, they have all sorts of like remote control shit to make the hands feel more alive. But uh, especially in the first half of this episode, I feel like Gonzo and Kermit both have just like big dead flappy hands kind of all over the place. And it's not a thing that I have really noticed before in the Muppet Show, and it really bothered me in this episode. Hmm. Anyway, officially, Gonzo has now left the show, and he has left in his wake a vacuum of culture and violence that demands to be filled. Chief, did you find a replacement for Gonzo? A replacement? Gee, Scooter, how could you possibly replace somebody like Gonzo? Easy! I know someone who'd probably be perfect! You do? Sure, he's the best friend of my uncle. The best friend of the man who owns this theater? The best friend of the man you own three months back rent to. Uh, uh, sounds very talented. What's his name? 
Trevor the Gross. Ta-da! When do I start? So Trevor is, in fact, a big, gross, green parrot thing wearing weird clothes. This puppet is delightful, but also looks like it's <laughs> going to fall apart at any moment. Like, they were like, we need this for five minutes of screen time. <laughs> Steve, if you let go, the head is falling off. <laughs> but it's also great. Can we take a minute, though, and appreciate Scooter in, like, peak conniving twink mode? Like, <laughs> and peak Scooter he, I mean, like, he jumped on that. Like, Gonzo, like, hadn't even walked out the door. He was still walking down the steps. And he's just like, have we got a replacement yet? Just, ugh. <laughs> Rude. Surely you're looking for a replacement, and I have just the fellow. Yeah. <laughs> He's very enthusiastic. Through this entire scene, Gonzo is, as Christy said, sort of lurking on the stairs down to the stage door. And then at the end, it, it zooms in on him looking very sad. And there are two posters that have maybe been there the whole time, but I've never seen them this close before. One is for Rolf plays Rachmaninoff with, I believe, the Muppet Philharmonic Orchestra, it says. And another for a vaudeville headliner, eight foot tall yellow canary, which I think has to be Big Bird, unless it's Fletcher. But I think... Big Bird has uh, been called Big that Bird before. Is the, is the canary. Presumably, yeah. unless there's some other co-production that also <laughs> it's a big giant canary. Yeah. I couldn't really read the rest of it, but I just love that Big Bird used to have a vaudeville act. That kind of made my day. That's great. It did take him a while to make his way to Sesame Street. It's really funny to me how the set decorators change up these posters every episode. And most people watching these in the late 70s, early 80s, did not have televisions where you could possibly make out what they said. So right, or really pause. Just, right, right, it was just for their own enjoyment. Are they different every episode, really? Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, now I'm going to really look for them. Because there's a couple different locations, too. So I thought these might have been there and we just hadn't noticed them before. No, there, there's always posters there, but they've rotated through uh, lots of different things. Interesting. And we don't often get a view down that little set of stairs. Right. Well, that's fine. Because there's some other ones that are like around the corner on the bottom of the main staircase. So I, th- I thought they were there. All no, in the same way that they change up the pictures that are decorating the dressing room. They've been changing up the posters. I love knowing that. Yeah, me too. Now I'm looking at a gift from last week. But you can't see them when Kermit's wheelchair rolls down the stairs. So, oh, well. Anyway, we go to Lola's dressing room where Lola suddenly finds Gonzo hiding in her closet. To Gonzo the Great, care of Muppet Show... Thought we were hiring other performer named Gonzo the Mediocre. Contract canceled. And so, oh, don't worry. Come on, I'm sure Kermit will give you a job right back. No, they already replaced me with this dumb-looking bird. <sighs> They're cleaning out my dressing room. They threw out my mildew collection. Lola attempts to console Gonzo with a song, which kind of works and kind of doesn't. You feel better now? Of course. Now I can smile my way through the rest of my miserable life. (laughs) I think he missed the point. Maybe, but he came to the same point that Ecclesiastes did, so I appreciate that. You might as well have good food and be with beautiful people through your whole pointless, miserable life. Chapter (laughs) 9. No wonder he was hiding in Lola's closet, because all is vanity. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. Speaking of having no dignity. My film deal fell through, but I'm willing to accept my old position back. No, but Gonzo. Oh, please, Kermit, kiss, kiss, grumble, grumble. Stop kissing my flipper, Gonzo. Have you no dignity? 
Of course not. How long have we worked together? <laughs> Always dignity. That is absolutely a thing I would say. <laughs> How long have you known me? Yeah. Very good. Just a little set note. Uh, this this whole thing is happening um, while Gonzo is trying to stop Trevor from going on. And so they're, they've closed the curtain on the act. So this whole thing is happening on stage right behind the curtain. And I we've probably seen this before, but I just love that we see the back of the curtain that they actually, you know, bothered to film it against it. And it's just, it's a nice little teeny tiny touch that made me very happy. Like at Disneyland where you see the back of water. <laughs> sure. I would go with Phantom of the Opera where the the thing flips around while she's singing. Think of me. But yeah, same thing. Exactly the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, just as Trevor is about to steal Gonzo's oatmeal act, uh, Gonzo wrenches his job back from Trevor by sicking the Muppet chickens on him. These are the same Muppet chickens who just did a number about trying to forget Gonzo, who doesn't seem to care about them anymore. But now they're all in for Gonzo. I guess the, the chemistry between Gonzo and the Muppet chickens is just that electric. Someday I will write my article for Tough Pigs about the misogyny inherent in the Muppets' treatment of the chickens, but... I've got a podcast to produce. <laughs> <laughs> but today is not that day, so we'll just speculate. But yeah, they just keep coming back for more Gonzo. Clucking back for more Gonzo. Anyway, Gonzo gets to finally perform his big tap dancing in a vat of oatmeal number, however briefly and however chaotically, because apparently oatmeal does not lend itself to tap dancing for very long, and he sinks very quickly. So this leads us to backstage Kermit laments that everything has gone wrong, Lola reminds us that what's really important is that Gonzo is back and they're all together again. There's a heartwarming song to take us out and everybody lives happily ever after. Hooray. You know, it's been just wonderful being a part of reuniting this great, big, wonderful family. Oh, <laughs> Miss Piggy, you're standing on my foot. <laughs> the wimp is back. Hey, don't call him a wimp. He is. We'll see you next time on The Muppet Show. I do also like that as soon as Gonzo returns, the Muppety chaos returns. Like he sings into the oatmeal and Kermit runs on stage and yells, close the curtain. And everybody tries to rescue Gonzo by eating their way through the oatmeal. It's a good time. There's a lot of calling Gonzo a wimp. And I did wonder if that was code in the way that Sissy is code. But also maybe not. Just was it's a weird... also a weird thing to call Gonzo, who is notably a daredevil. Right. The opposite right. of yeah. a wimp. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure what what they think it means as opposed to what I think it means. I also don't fully comprehend what they mean by geek. I think well, geek in the carnival sense. Yeah, geek is a circus term. Right. So that actually yeah. makes a certain amount of sense. Specifically, isn't it the person who bites the heads off of chickens? It I is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think geek and freak are pretty synonymous at this moment in time as opposed to the way geek and nerd are now synonymous. Um, so that that tracks, but wimp wimp was an interesting choice of words. And then that little that little exchange of like, don't call him a wimp. Well, he is. Like, <laughs> okay. What are we saying? <laughs> what are we saying? Let's work it out through music. Oh man, holy cluck, you guys. We got some music to talk about. I'm really excited to talk about our opening number. <laughs> Good night, ladies. Good night, ladies. 
We got our chicken dancing cardio in for the day. Um, this so was this- the moment of the episode that made me light up and be like, yes! <laughs> yes! And it's the opening number. I'm all in from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, so this is a song called Pick a Little, Talk a Little from The Music Man, written by Meredith Wilson from 1957. We've talked about Meredith Wilson in some sort of sideways contexts, but we haven't talked about him directly. So let's do that. Meredith Wilson was born in 1902 and died exactly a week after I was born. There can only be one of us. What can I say? (laughs) Meredith Wilson is probably somebody that to most of our audience we don't necessarily have to explain. But in addition to writing The Music Man, he's notable for writing the song It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. He made a lot of uh, appearances on panel game shows in the 50s and 60s. He had a very professorly pedantic quality to him. He was also famous as a band leader. He was sort of... Yeah. Before Leonard Bernstein did his like i'm gonna talk about the symphony on tv thing meredith wilson kind of did that on the radio right yeah he loved to explain shit <laughs> <laughs> loved it but not the writer of the music man uh yeah like <laughs> or the writer of and then i wrote them sorry i don't want to steal your thunder <laughs> yeah why why don't we get into that well first of all okay let, let's talk a little bit for if for some reason you don't know anything about the music man music man was a Huge hit Broadway musical. It won five Tonys, including Best Musical. It beat West Side Story. It beat West Side Story, and Stephen Sondheim never forgave or forgot. (laughs) (laughs) It was a Valentine to small town America. It was. And there have been uh, two Broadway revivals, including one just last year with Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. Uh, Numerous other notable productions. Apparently, Christian Slater played the the young boy Renthrop in a production in 1980. That's what I... My fun thing that I learned today. Two movies, uh, like a feature film and then like a TV movie with Matthew Broderick that I do not recommend. The original cast album of Music Man was the very first winner of the Grammy for Best Musical Theater Album. And in the original production and the uh, original movie, the Barbershop Quartet, who will come up in a moment, uh, were played by uh, the Buffalo Bills, who were the 1950 International Quartet Champions of the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Quartet Singing in America. Inc. Good Lord. S-P-E-B-S-Q-S-A. And uh, that organization... <laughs> Luckily for them, they still exist today, and they've shortened their name to the Barbershop Harmony Society. <laughs> it's probably a wise move. I just misread that in our outline before you said it out loud as the Barbershop Humane Society. (laughs) Be kind to the barbershop. Yeah. Barbershop quartets are dying in shelters all across America. (laughs) Adopt a barbershop quartet. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm I'm hearing that Sarah McLaughlin song in four part harmony and it's (laughs) incredible. Yeah, so uh, the Barbershop Quartet in the show version of this comes in with the the piece that Gonzo sings. So uh, Meredith Wilson, famous mansplainer, did in fact make an album with his wife, Rennie, called And Then I Wrote the Music Man, in which the two of them are at a piano, and he explains the context of the songs, and the two of them play and sing them. This was after he wrote two, two, two separate books about how he wrote the music man. (laughs) Dude just loved to explain his life. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, we have a podcast, so I don't know that we're in any position to judge. Sure. Yeah. I mean, listen, I have this album. Like, I. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so the thing that that's particularly delightful about this is that in the show it's these gossipy ladies that are supposed to kind of sound like chickens let's hear meredith wilson talking about the ladies first of all i must tell you that they all wear those big 1912 hats and when they get to gossiping all these ladies well uh, you know their hats going up and the feathers flying it sounds kind of like this Pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, chick, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, chick, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, chick, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, chick, 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 Yes, the ladies say to Professor Hill, this Miss Marion advocates dirty books at the library. Chaucer, Rabelais, Balzac. And I had to bring a second clip in which he explains the entrance of the barbershop quartet. Down the next block comes the school board. Well, the school board has hated each other for 15 years, but uh, Professor Hill has, in the meantime, formed them into a barbershop quartet, and this is the result. Good night, ladies. Good night, ladies. Good night, ladies. We're going to leave you now. Farewell, ladies. Farewell, ladies. Farewell, ladies. We're going to leave you now. Oh, she was much braver than he was with that ending note. <laughs> The Music Man is not a show for me, and I hate it so much more now after hearing that. <laughs> You're welcome. But, but I, I will say, I mean, this is a delightful, perfect chicken number, and it's exactly the right length. <laughs> it is very funny. And the thing I'm struck by with both of these chicken numbers is that they're both fully reliant on the monoculture and on musical theater as popular music. And just, especially the second one, because this one can be nonsense, doesn't matter. But just assuming that basically your entire audience knows exactly what song is being clucked yeah. um, for the joke to work. And I love that about it. It is a nice Muppety touch that Meredith Wilson thought he was making a joke about like, haha, these big feathered hats, they might they make these ladies sound like chickens. And then the Muppets take it so literally that they have chickens sing it. <laughs> There's something That's particularly great. Muppety and charming about that. And my love for The Music Man goes way back. It was a formative theatrical experience for me. So you can't ruin The Music Man for me. My my entire family was in it together in 1995. I played Amaryllis. Amazing. Yep. My dad was in the barbershop. It was a good time. Was this in America or in Israel? This was in the Jerusalem English-speaking theater, or Jest. <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah, my mom was a pickle little lady and my sister was Gracie Shin. I love it. Mm -hmm. There is one weird thing about this, which is like towards the end, Gonzo's like kissing some of the chickens or like doing like, I don't know. He's, I mean, apparently has no, going to no town. Has capabilities. Yeah, I, I just had some questions. <laughs> uh, you know, it's too bad Gonzo's leaving the show. Yeah, I can think of some other people I'd rather see leave the show. Who? Me! <laughs> oh, so from 
turn of the century Iowa to let's find ourselves smack dab in uh, 1979. The place was so boring, filled with out of time storing. I knew that it wasn't my thing. I really wasn't caring, but I felt my eyes staring at a guy who stuck out in the crowd. He had the kind of body that would shame Adonis and the face that would make any man proud. Oh, what a while! He's been waiting Oh, what a song called he's the greatest dancer it's a big hit uh in 1979 for sister sledge on their album we are family uh it was written by bernard edwards and niall rogers uh the co-founders of the band chic and it uh, hit number one on the billboard r&b chart and the billboard dance club songs chart which is a chart that i learned existed from 1976 to 2020 huh. i mean i guess did covid close the discos and I mean, who who knows? I, I don't... <laughs> bleak. Anyway, let's not focus on it too much. It was uh, number nine on the Hot 100, number eight on Cashbox, and then number 45 on Billboard's year-end Hot 100 for 1979. And if you're hearing the song and it sounds vaguely familiar to you, but maybe not the singing, the beat of it was sampled in Will Smith's Getting Jiggy With It. <laughs> And uh, that song uh, was a Hot 100 number one and inexplicably hit number 37 on the Billboard Hot Latin Songs chart. Okay. I've got some questions. And the thing that I love about that song is that, uh, you know, it won a Grammy and it, uh, VH1 ranked it the 68th greatest song of the 90s. But then, like, <laughs> in 2010, uh, it was ranked on multiple, like, worst songs ever lists. <laughs> what? So, yeah, including a, a pitchfork list of the seven worst u.s singles of the 90s <laughs> so yeah i was yesterday years old when i learned that those lyrics were oh what wow huh <laughs> my entire life i thought they were saying i wonder why which also doesn't make sense and i thought it was just nonsense yeah even just now hearing the clip i thought it was just like a oh, wow yeah huh. i mean this was this episode was my first time hearing the song and i was watching the muppet show with captions so i also learned that this week <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i've heard this song before but like it I'm just not. sounds like like disco wallpaper to me yep and i like disco and even with that this just feels like a totally undistinguished song i agree it's also i like i like it i like i mean in the muppet show context despite what i'm about to say but it is um it's sort of a static staging yeah lola is up on a little riser stage situation with whatnots dancing around her, like below her. And she's joined in turn by Dog Lion, Timmy Monster, and Fletcher Bird. And just the way it's set up, like she doesn't really have anywhere she can go. And the whatnots don't really have anywhere they can go and they can't interact with her. And then the monster dancing choreographed by our friend Jillian Lynn is pretty fun, actually. It's sort of great, but it's just think about like the the whole set is split in two. And we're coming up on a truly spectacular Muppet disco number where the human and the Muppets are going to be all in the same room together. So I don't know. It just, um, it stood out to me in that way. There's also like a really weirdly off brand whatnot, uh, who I made a gif of with like very big hair, but also like his face isn't right. It's just, I don't know. It's just odd. There's a lot going on. 
again, I'm glad that I watched some of that Vegas special because this was not a showcase for Lola's dancing. She was having a good time lounging around near these monsters. Well, and what it does do for her that I really like is it, it centers her. Like it really does, you know, it puts her on a pedestal very literally. And I, I did like the choreography with the, with the monsters in a way that made me want to see more of her. Yeah. Right. Of course, Gonzo, you know, comes in and has to make it about him. Yeah. When we watched this, my spouse said, why is Gonzo dressed like he's trying to be Cyrano de Bergerac? Gonzo is wearing this giant feathered hat, like a Robin Hood style hat, inexplicably. But it seems to work at the disco, or at least everybody's into it. Gonzo is getting jiggy. His whole outfit. I don't think we've seen this outfit before. And it's I think he's in the same outfit for the whole episode, except for the hat, which gets added for the disco. And the jacket is on and off at various points. But um, it, was, it was a lot. It was a lot of brown. <laughs> There's some suspenders involved. Gonzo's dancing is fun. Oh, totally. Yeah, just the costume that I have questions about. Yeah, fair. Uh, do you ever go to those dances? Dance. I got a slip disco. Slip <laughs> disco. <laughs> <laughs> So I forgot to mention it, but we do hear off screen, but on stage, if, if you can parse that, uh, a, a tiny snippet of When the Saints Go Marching In, uh, as performed by Herbie, the One Octopus Band. And uh, we won't go into any detail about it, really, because it will appear as an actual number that we see next season. Well, let's rip the Band-Aid of Sadness off. <laughs> and now the time has come. And now the time... <laughs> Has come. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Yeah, so it's my way. Which is a song that was made famous by, grab your bingo card, noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra. Bingo! In bingo. You already said his name tonight. If you didn't already check it off, you lost. (laughs) Maybe I had it twice. I don't think that's how bingo works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, is he like the center square? Like, what? Anyway. He should be a free square. Yeah. He should be a free square for as much as we, we mentioned him. So yeah, so this song actually began as a French song called Come d'habitude, which means like per usual or as usual, that was written by uh, Jacques Raveau. Uh, he wrote the music and Gilles Thibault and Claude Francois wrote the lyrics. And Claude Francois uh, recorded it in 1967. And Paul Anka heard this song on vacation in France and acquired the rights to translate it. And shortly thereafter, he had this apparently depressing-sounding dinner with uh, Sinatra and a couple of mob guys. His words, not mine. And uh, Sinatra claimed that, oh, he's like, I'm over it, and I'm going to quit the business, and blah, 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 blah. And so Paul Anka went home and wrote lyrics to the tune that had nothing to do with the lyrics of the original uh, in Frank's voice. Like, he sat down at his typewriter and was like, you know, all right, what, what would Frank say? And uh, so, so this is like the quintessential noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra. And uh, yeah, he recorded it in late 68, released it in early 69. It hit number 27 on the Hot 100, number two on the Billboard Easy Listening chart, number 29 on Cashbox. And 
it holds this interesting distinction because it spent 75 weeks in the UK top 40, which places it at number three of all time runs on the UK top 40 chart. And yeah, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in the year 2000. So it is quite the successful song. And Frank Sinatra always claimed to have sort of an uneasy relationship with this song because he felt like it was a little bit braggy, which he claimed to not like to do, which I don't know, sounds fake. <laughs> sure, but, Frank. But sure. he said that in a lot of interviews. <laughs> so one of the fascinating things about this is that Paul Anka was actually the second attempt at English language lyrics to this song. Uh, the first attempt was by David Bowie, who wrote lyrics uh, under the title, Even a Fool Learns to Love. And apparently they were terrible, and Jack Raveau rejected them. And Bowie got really pissed off and got even more pissed off when Paul Inca had such an incredibly huge hit with it and made buckets and buckets of money. And the David Bowie song, Life on Mars, was written as sort of his, like, well, I'm going to write my own my way. And depending on who you believe, it was either his sincere attempt at a Frank Sinatra style song or a parody of what he felt like my way became. But either way, he ended up with a mega hit of his own. Uh, And although I don't think Frank Sinatra ever recorded it, Barbara Streisand sure did. Uh, So that's just like such a weird footnote to this song. That's crazy. I cannot imagine Frank Sinatra or Barbara Streisand singing Life on Mars, but I guess I can at least hear one of those. You can. It's not. I, I think it's it's fine, but like Bowie fans hate Streisand. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine so. I love that song. We should talk about the actual performance here. And in general, I think this episode is such a showcase for Dave Goals as a puppeteer. Uh, certainly, I mean, sure, as a vocalist, but uh, I think he gets so much out of gonzo and you know he has this sort of ace in the hole with gonzo's eyelids being able to move the way they do but he uses them to such great effect to to get really like expressive emotive faces out of him Mm -hmm. and then in this song he pulls what is sort of a shameless trick and certainly whenever like a human performer does it it, i would have to roll my eyes but where gonzo breaks down in the middle of the song and they're like oh no i can't go on moment uh which i think is both like laughable and effective uh but to me it's very reminiscent of what frankenfurter does during i'm going home and rocky horror uh which would have been you know of the moment more or less at this time it's also just the the way it's staged and shot it's gonzo on a mostly bare stage there's a there's a crate and a ghost light which i sort of mentioned this a similar setup last week as not making any sense but here it is it is the set for him to sing this song on like this is how they have they have arranged it and he's you see him, him full body standing next to the crate and so his you know his feet are stapled to the floor or whatever and so the camera moves a lot because gonzo actually can't and it's really beautiful there's a sort of sweeping shot across the footlights it's just really lovely i don't really have any use for this song but it was it was so nicely done that i it balanced that for me yeah, even if you're determined to not feel any feelings during this song, they're they're going to make sure you feel something. Well, especially when Kermit comes on to comfort him. Yeah. Like, e- e- even if the song didn't do it like that moment, will, I think. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Adam. Unless you're me. But the hug, the <laughs> hug. The hug was great. I made a gift. <laughs> well, he's actually gone. Will we ever forget him? 
Who? You know, uh, uh, what's his name? <laughs> well, now in our UK spot, let's go bock to the chickens. <laughs> Hall has her disco light out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love this so much. It's great. But yeah, this is, uh, in case you don't speak chicken, this is, uh, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair, South Pacific, uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein musical from 1949. We've talked about South Pacific before, I think, but um, yeah, yeah, it also won the best did musical some intended evening. Oh, right. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Way back. Way back in season one. Yeah, uh, Tony and Pulitzer winner South Pacific. And this song uh, was used as a jingle by Clairol in the 80s. So, like, there definitely uh, is some monoculture stuff happening here. But, yeah, I love that this is entirely dependent on you knowing what the song is in the context of the song. Because unlike the other one, I mean, Camilla has, like, a like a towel turban thing happening. But other than that, it's not like they're, like, showering, you know? Yeah, she's doing a full Nellie Falbush. Uh, uh, the only reason I don't like this, and this is the UK spot, so not everyone saw this, is that it's it's just the exact same thing that we already saw with Big Little. It's it's chickens in the coop singing in chicken talk, and it goes on forever. Like it feels like they did the entire. So I don't know the song well enough to actually have like they do not because they don't do the bridge. Yeah, right. They, it just was like we're really going to do the whole song. We get it. But I do love that Camilla has her little towel on and is pecking at a photo of an autographed to Camilla photo of Gonzo on the side of the coop because she is mad that Gonzo is fraternizing with Lola Falana. And I do love that about it. I mean, and that's the difference between this number and the last one. Camilla has been slighted and she is working out her feelings. Fair. While washing her hair. <laughs> Oh, it's so great. And I love it so much. And I couldn't believe when I read the wiki page for this episode that it's the UK spot. I can't believe that people had to miss out on this. It, fe- it felt like the equivalent of learning that the Beatles song Rain was a B-side. If I were going to pick one for the UK spot, I probably would have picked Pick a Little Talk a Little instead of this. But I'm sure for but like reasons of programming that yeah. they couldn't make the UK spot be that early in the show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's not much that I would have been able to just snip out of this episode other than like the one sketch that we'll talk about later but that probably wasn't long enough Mm. and now time for a dressing room cheer up even though it's breaking even when clouds are high in the sky that's the time you must keep on smiling smile what's the use in crying You'll see your sun come shining through If you just Light up the life with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Smile, which is a a piece of music that was written by Charlie Chaplin uh, in 1936 for his movie Modern Times. It was apparently inspired by Puccini's Tosca, so many people inspired by Puccini. Fascinating. 
there were lyrics added to it uh, much later by John Turner and Jeffrey Parsons uh, in 1954. And it was uh, first recorded by Nat King Cole, whose version went to number 10 on the precursor to the Hot 100. The Hot 100 came about five years after that. And uh, number two on the UK singles chart. And it's a very popular standard. It's been recorded by many, many, many people. Uh, And the weirdest fact that I learned about it is that an orchestral version of it played over the credits of the last episode of the original run of Jeopardy in 1975. Yeah, very strange. So this is lovely. I enjoyed it fine, but I wonder just how many of these dressing room cheer-ups have been directed at Gonzo. Like, if we sat and, like, did a pie chart, like, would Gonzo have the biggest slice? It's either him or Fozzie. Yeah. Because they're both sort of the depressives of the group, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, Robin's gotten one or two, but otherwise... Oh, yeah, he'd be up in the running. But Gonzo and Fozzie also are the most likely to have personal relationships with female guest stars. Yeah, I guess that's... At least in the post-talk spot era of the book. Yeah, I was going to say, pretty soon we're going to see my favorite of the dressing room cheer-ups, which is one directed at Kermit. So Kermit's definitely adjacent, but yeah, no. Fozzie and and Gonzo are definitely the most female, human-friendly. If we have any bored data scientists out there... (laughs) Charts and graphs. Charts and graphs. We'll put it on a t-shirt. Charts and graphs. All right. Well, let's let's start dancing in oatmeal. Putting on my top hat. Tying up my white tie. Dusting off my toothpaste. Wait, wait. He's trying to get to the oatmeal. Uh, Dave Gull's good at his job. Oh my gosh. <laughs> How long did he survive when he's drowned in like six feet of oatmeal? <laughs> the little wahawa that Frank Oz does, that Fozzie does. Yep. They better eat fast. Oh, such a vivid sound. <laughs> so, yeah, that song we've talked about before. It's Top Hat, uh, White Tie, and Tails, uh, which Rudolf Nureyev did in his episode. Yeah, Irving Berlin song, 1935. One of the many, many Fred Astaire numbers that the Muppets have done and done again. Yep. But I can only hear it in Nureyev's accent. And I guess picture him drowning in oatmeal. (laughs) (laughs) What are they doing with those spoons? Scraping the bottom of the barrel. Mm, I'm not surprised. That's how they get all their acts. (laughs) (laughs) I got some raisins. (laughs) (laughs) I've missed New Zealand. Scooter. I like that he's back. Yep. He's here to help. Enterprising. <laughs> well, and then Gonzo appears immediately. Like he's no longer in the barrel while they're eating their way out. Now they've just got a vat of oatmeal to eat. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. So we get a, a second cheer up moment for some reason. Well, you'd need cheering up too if you had nearly drowned in a vat of oatmeal. I sure would. Yeah, yeah. 
song called united we stand which was a song by a group called the brotherhood of man uh no discernible connection to the frank lesser song from how to succeed in business without really trying and the song uh, is from 1970 the brotherhood of man was a british pop group who later went on to win the eurovision song contest in 1976 um but this song was, was a decent sized hit it hit number 13 on both the hot 100 and cash box and was number 64 on the year end hot 100 and it was also the closing theme of 1977's The Brady Bunch Hour. And it's been recorded by a, a bunch of people, including Elton John and Sonny and Cher. So I guess there there aren't too many excuses for me to have not heard this song before, but I had never heard this song before. It did not sound familiar to me, but I'm sure I must have heard it. I mean, certainly I've watched The Brady Bunch Variety Show. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so so Adam, I, I think the reason that the the gonzo plot doesn't work is because we get two repeated beats in the the musical numbers we we get the two chicken numbers and then we get two cheer up numbers Mm -hmm. i feel like it's missing like i i don't think this is the sentiment that closes out that arc like i think you need like something more triumphant maybe it's just because it's it's such a you know i don't know it's such like a sixth grade chorus song. Yeah. yeah. I think it might be the song Goofy. choice that's not working here. Yeah. Because it should work. It's yeah. got, I mean, it's all the Muppets slowly gathering around and more and more Muppets joining in and everybody all across the backstage set is just putting their arms around each other and joining in song. It should be a really lovely moment. Yeah. But if you compare this to other sh- episodes that have done that sort of thing, like, like in Dom DeLuise, when they sing We Got Us, like that's such a rousing number. Yeah. Or even uh, with Bernard Peters when they do Just One Person, which is also like a sentimental number, but it 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 builds over the course of the song in a way that this one doesn't. This just sort of stays flat throughout. Yeah. There's it's also... Goopy. So like all these Muppets join in on the balcony and... Like they do it sort of badly. Um, I assume it's a situation where um, you know folks have one puppet on each arm, um, and so Beauregard and Bunsen enter sort of sideways, and neither of them is Dave Goals because Gonzo is in the scene for real, um, and and Bunsen would be the left arm, and he's like he is fucked up. Like it's <laughs> it's really weird, and then like it gets corrected, but it's like it it sort of adds this feeling that a I would have liked it if those characters had been in the episode because I like those characters, but B like that they didn't really care and they didn't bother doing a second take. And it was like, Oh shit, we have five more minutes of this episode to fill. It's kind of how I felt about it. it Nigel and Annie Sue are, are mm-hmm. the same person's two arms and, so, and Annie yeah. Sue's on the left arm. And it, until you just said that, I was like, why was Annie Sue off in this? And that's why. Cause like, again, it's just like very, very half-assed. Like Bunsen like falls into the scene. It's obviously, I made a gift. If, you're, if you didn't catch it, it will be in the show notes, but like, it's just weird. And it, I think the, yeah, the fact that this is so sleepy is part of why it stood out to me, but also like your eye goes right to that stuff because it's rare. And the fact that they didn't notice or do another take or even just use a different camera angle for that moment is weird. I guess I was distracted by Floyd and Janice, because it worked for them to be performed by the same person, because they're all cuddled up and it's adorable. 
Jazz, listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? So one brief snippet of show business this week. Uh, today in Muppet Sports, a tree staring contest. It's the classic confrontation. Man against wood. Uh-huh. After over 87 hours of staring at a tree, Klaus Mueller of West Paraguay has finally outstared the tree, which finally has to cover its eyes, and then falls on Klaus. He's dead now. It's confirmed. <laughs> so if we have a character from Paraguay named Klaus Mueller, are we to understand him as either a uh, an exiled Nazi, Nazi? Hiding, yeah, or, or the child of one? <laughs> That's absolutely what I thought, thought that joke was. <laughs> yeah. So what does he need this $10,000 prize for? I mean, he definitely doesn't need it now because he's dead. Well, it's also like they make they make a thing out of both his name and then he has a Spanish accent. Like, is that the joke? I don't like Muppet Sports, you guys. <laughs> no, I, it's yeah. the worst. I like this one better than, you know, the one that made fun of blind people. But, but that at least had like a Monty Python-esque... Because it was fully ripped off from Monty Python sketch, right. like zip to it that like, yeah, we wouldn't make the joke in the same way now. But like, I at least I got it. Yeah, it was a cool tree. It was a cool tree. It was a very elaborate tree puppet. And is the tree also dead if the tree has fallen? Like well, the tree is still speaking. Some murder, murder, suicide. Yeah, but he doesn't sound like he's happy about it. Because his roots come out of the ground. Maybe that's just uh, what trees sound like. Maybe. There's a lot we'll never know. You know, Gonzo would have been perfect for that movie he was going to star in. What movie was that? The Revenge of the Little Blue Geek. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for our discussion of the Dizzy Gillespie episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I could talk about that clip, but I don't think anyone cares. <laughs> <laughs>